is from Matthew 11, 16 through 24. This is the message. How can I account for this generation? The people have been like spoiled children whining to their parents. We wanted to skip rope, and you were always too tired. We wanted to talk, but you were always too busy. John came fasting, and they called him crazy. I came feasting, and they called me a boozer, a friend of the misfits. Opinion polls don't count for much, do they? The proof of the pudding is in the eating. Next, Jesus unleashed on the cities where he had worked the hardest, but whose people had responded the least, shrugging their shoulders and going their own way. Doom to you, Chorazin. Doom, Bethsaida. If Tyre and Sidon had seen half of the powerful miracles you have seen, they would have been on their knees in a minute. At Judgment Day, they'll get off easy compared to you. And Capernaum, with all your peacock strutting, you are going to end up in the abyss. If the people of Sodom had had your chances, the city would still be around. At Judgment Day, they'll get off easy compared to you. This is the word of the Lord. If you go back to Matthew 9, you can trace Jesus' steps from the Sea of Galilee to the towns around the north end of the Sea of Galilee. You can trace the various audiences, and there's a number of them who heard him teaching. And you also find out about their reaction to Jesus, and it's varied. The title of the sermon is, What Does It Take? What Does It Take? And it's a question that I'd like for you to be asking um, throughout the sermon and at the conclusion of the sermon. Whirlwind is how I would describe Jesus' life in this period of time. First step of this ministry was his baptism by John the Baptist. I like to think of that as John the Baptist handing off the baton to Jesus. Immediately following that, it says the Spirit pushed Jesus out into the wilderness. And for 40 days, Jesus was alone in the wilderness with no company but Satan. During that time, Satan was... Uh, asking the question, what are you made of, Jesus? What does it take you take to get you to go against your vocation, against your commitment, against your mission? What does it take? Following the temptation, uh, Jesus then launches into his ministry full-time, and he, that is when he delivers this, this sermon, this great sermon, uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's the only place in the Bible that you will find that much of Jesus' teaching all in one place. It describes for this crowd of people that have gotten around him to listen what it is that God's kingdom is up to, what it is that God likes to see in us and in the changes in our lives. Following this, there was a string of miraculous events. There was the healing of Peter's mother in Capernaum. 
There was the calming of a stormy sea, the Sea of Galilee. There was exorcism also around the Sea of Galilee. Matthew says that uh, after all that, uh, Jesus got in a boat to return to Capernaum. I can picture him stepping out of the boat and being met by this crowd of people. You know, that's the way we are. We like something novel. We like something we haven't seen before. And Jesus was that. And among that crowd was a, a group of people that had this litter, a portable bed, and they're carrying a paralyzed man, a friend of theirs. I love this event. I like to think about what Jesus was doing here. He says to the man on the litter, the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. Now, of all the things that he could have said to that man, I don't know why he picked those words. Your sins are forgiven. Was he saying that the man was paralyzed because of his sin? I don't think so. Accusations of blasphemy come from the religious leaders, come from the people who had studied the law following the healing. Jesus basically says to them, well, you know, it really doesn't matter what words I use. The text doesn't say this, but I, I could imagine Jesus saying, I could say, go take your dog for a walk. It, would, it doesn't matter. What happens to this man is rooted in my being, in who I am. So, since words are so important to you, I'll just tell him to take up his bed and go home. Which is what happens. Words don't matter. The thing I want you to notice in, in Matthew is the number of uh, miraculous events that accompany Jesus as he, he works his way through his ministry. And I want you to notice the impact of these miraculous deeds on the people that observe them, particularly the religious leaders. Of all the people that Jesus had trouble with, these were the, the most trouble that he experienced. The religious people, the people that know better. The people that had religious training, that had grown up in it, that cut their teeth on it, that were weaned on it. But all Jesus gets from them is vehemence, defensiveness, anger, how dare you say that? Luke 5, 32, Jesus told his critics at Levi's house that, yeah, don't worry about it. Those who are well don't really need me, don't need my services. Of course, Jesus had his tongue in his cheek. This was sarcasm at its greatest. Because whether or not they needed it rested in their minds, not in actuality. He says, I've come to call not the righteous, not you guys, but the sinners. 
Levi's house was filled with those kinds of people. Don't you love it? That's who Jesus liked to be with. It's people who, who lived life on the edge, who were not part of the, the establishment. Jesus liked those people. I think it may, uh, I think because of their authenticness, because they're transparent, because they don't change their behavior depending on the crowd they're with. You can see, you can see why Jesus would hang around with them. I think he, he'd rather, not that such a thing exists, but I, I think he would probably rather go sit at the bar with someone than in church. Because of how we, we so often put on masks, we, we pretend to be something that we're not. And so listen to this cast of characters. There's the leper who begs for healing, pardon me, in Matthew 8, 2. There's the centurion, the Roman centurion, not a Jew, who pleads for his servant. Will you come heal my servant? And there were the demoniacs who prowled around the area of the Sea of Galilee called Gadara. There was the paralyzed man who brought, whose friends brought him to Jesus. That's 9-2. There was the people who came to Matthew's house, 9-10. The blind men who begged, who begged for sight, 9-27. The harassed and helpless crowds, 9-36. You can just see them, rapid fire. My next point's called by contrast because that's exactly what happens here. Jesus makes a big point by talking about Chorazin and Bethsaida. So, uh, I want you to know where Tyre and Sidon are on. They're on the Mediterranean. They're not, that's not a Jewish town. This is Gentile. Look at where Capernaum is down here at the bottom. Here's Capernaum. Capernaum is... It's really a headquarters for Jesus. And remember a week or two ago, we talked about how Jesus conscientiously moves his headquarters from Nazareth, his hometown, to Capernaum. This is where it is, right there in the middle of everything. Look just above Capernaum and you'll see Chorazin, and to the right you'll see Bethsaida. This is all around that area. Chorazin was two miles from the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Bethsaida was about a mile and a half from the shoreline of the sea. Uh, Chorazin was an agricultural city and Bethsaida was a fishing village. Chorazin contained a, an elaborate synagogue and was thought to be very prosperous. Three of Jesus' disciples come from Bethsaida, Philip, Andrew, and Peter, come from that town. People of Bethsaida were fickle and narcissistic, according to this text, changeable, never know what they're going to think. Both cities were in the center of Jesus' early ministry. Capernaum was the city he chose as the 
uh, sort of headquarters that he operated out of. What is really significant is that three miracles were performed at Bethsaida. One was the feeding of the 5,000. Boy, that was a big one. Healing of a blind man and Jesus walking on water. Both of these cities were privileged in their proximity to what Jesus was doing. Privileged. They saw it. I suppose you could say it's like living 90 miles from Yosemite and never going there. People who have never been to Yosemite or people that have never seen the ocean. Jesus excoriates these two big cities. He says to them, if Tyre and Sidon, you saw where that was over on the Mediterranean, Gentile cities, if Tyre and Sidon had seen what I've done here, they would have repented. You can almost hear him muttering under his breath, what's wrong with you? Why are you so resistant to changing your life? Why are you so resistant to accepting something that is so obvious and so true? Phoenicia had a, that's the, the nation of Phoenicia that Tyre and Sidon are inside of. It was a prosperous area. They had a temple to their false god. I, I don't know the name of that god. Jesus actually went there. But he didn't want to make his presence known there. I don't know why. Nevertheless, this is a wonderful story. There was this woman with a daughter who had an evil spirit. Uh, I'm in Matthew 15, by the way, if you're, if you're reading along and want to see this. Uh, I'm going to begin in verse 21 because I think this is such a great story. Uh, then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Gentile woman. Now, one of the things that's exciting to me about this text is you start to see the gospel moving out. I mean, even early in, in Jesus' ministry, he's, he's out in the hinterland. He's out among the Gentiles, and you can see where all of this is headed. A woman, a Gentile woman who lived there, came to him pleading, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, for my daughter is possessed by a demon that torments her severely. But Jesus gave her no reply. This is one of the texts that leaves you scratching your head. Jesus blows her off. He doesn't even say a word to her. And then his disciples urged him to send her away. Tell her to go away. She's bothering us with all this begging. Then Jesus said to the woman, I was sent only to help God's lost sheep, the people of Israel. Too bad for you. Sucks to be from Phoenicia. But she came and worshipped him and pleaded again, Lord, help me. Jesus responded, It isn't right to take food from the children and to throw it to the dogs, you dog. Now, I don't, I don't have a clue why Jesus said that. 
seems so out of character for him, doesn't it? To say that to another human being, particularly the kind of people that love him and want to hear his message. She replied, that's true, Lord. This woman has moxie. She has courage. Yeah, you're right. But even dogs are allowed to eat the scraps that fall beneath their master's table. Dear woman, Jesus says to her, your faith is great. Your request is granted and her daughter was instantly healed. A powerful story. And I, I, I think it, it serves as such great backdrop to what, I mean, this is Tyre and Sidon. This is where that's happening. And Paredes and, and Bethsaida didn't have time for the Lord. Jesus sees that. Jesus recognizes that. Jesus likened the Jewish audiences to children who can never be pleased. Matthew eleven seventeen, and to the audiences of John who called him demon possessed, and Jesus who had an opposite presence they called a glutton and a drunkard. Churches can be like this. I think what Jesus is saying here really kind of pulls us up short and says, wait a minute. Are we like that? Do I act that way towards Jesus? Always sort of amused me, uh, sometimes irritated the tar out of me, but church and Lubbock, you just had a lot of people, and so you got a, a big sample whenever you preached there, and some Sundays, people would come out and say, oh, that was the greatest sermon ever. You should never listen to your uh, to people who give you praise. And others would, would go out and say, almost, that's the worst thing I have ever heard in my life. Same sermon. Same sermon. I think this text calls for us to ask if we're more like a Phoenician woman begging Jesus to heal her daughter or like a Jewish audience who could not tolerate his teaching and did not repent. Are we the critic? Are, are we the one that sits on the side and throws rocks at what Jesus is doing or, or, or whatever? Or are we more like somebody who's hungry wants more of what it is that Jesus gave us. We probably thought that Jesus was too extreme and that he was demanding too much. You know, that's what people say about the Sermon on the Mount. One of the reasons I want us to look at it this morning. People say, oh, you can't obey that. That's a pipe dream. Tell that to Jesus. Talk to the hand. <laughs> I hope I've caused you to think about 
which city do you live in? Maybe that would be a good way to ask. Which city do you live in? Let's pray. Dear Christ of Tyre, who found in pagans who didn't know you a better audience for your teaching and healing, who rolled out the red carpet when you tried to sneak into town, they were able to see you, Jesus. And we ask you to awaken us so that we too see you and seek your healing. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.